Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. Well, it is July the 1st here. Um, a few days removed from some momentous things. I think I know what we're, uh, what we're doing here today, but why don't you tell, why don't you tell the listeners? Yeah, there was no other thing to talk about this week than the SCOTUS's Dobbs decision. And we knew this was coming. You had been pushing for an episode on this topic for a while, particularly after the draft was leaked back in February. And I had said, no, let's put it off until we get the actual draft. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we don't, in some cases, want to be counting our chickens before they hatch. Well, let's see what actually comes out. Uh, and so it, it did come out last week. And that's what this episode is going to be focused on. We, we do have... Uh, a number of segments here we've recorded, we're going to record over the course of, of several days here. So we apologize in advance if uh, things feel repetitive at all. There's just, there's so much to talk about and we barely cracked the surface here. We totally understand that neither of us are experts at there's various aspects of, of this decision and the implications for this decision, but we, we try our best to hit on as many of the issues associated with the Dobbs decision as possible. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I guess I should also call, I'm very excited that we'll be joined by uh, one of my good friends from college, um, Michaela Louie later on in the, in the podcast. So, um, you know, you're going to hear Brendan and I rant for a little bit, but definitely stick around because that, uh, that interview is, is worth a listen. Yeah, so we on our Instagram, again, if you don't follow us, please give us a follow over at uh, A Gentleman's Disagreement. But we had thrown out like, hey, if you have any thoughts on this episode, you know, I know there's a lot of feelings out there. Please feel free to shoot us a message. And a lot of people did, which we really appreciate. Uh, but the one I thought was most relevant was someone just responded, get a female on the show. <laughs> so we're like, yep, that's a good idea. Uh, so I think just to touch on that briefly, I don't think this is a conversation that men need to, or even should stay out of, because this is a decision that does affect men in a lot of ways. And men certainly have a right to an opinion, but obviously having two men talk about this leaves out the most important voice, which is women. And so like Ricky said, uh, that's probably the most important part of the episode uh, speaking with Michaela. Um, And we're hopeful to get on some more perspectives uh, from the more female perspectives on, on this issue uh, as we go along, but I'm very grateful that, that she joined us for that. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, I want to do two things quickly. One, uh, give a quick shout out to our sponsors who for our longtime listeners, you know that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Canada Hill Woodworking. 
Again, hopefully you know at this point, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. You can check them out on Instagram while you go throw us a ball, uh, or you can visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Remember, that's Cannon with two N's. So they've been super helpful to us, and we appreciate them sticking with us, particularly as our schedules have varied over the last couple of months. But um, I also want to just do a personal disclaimer. Uh, I'm going to make a lot of arguments in this episode, both with Ricky and with Michaela. I believe in a lot of these arguments but I don't believe in all of them. Uh, I do feel like my job here is to provide a, a conservative, a, a, a different perspective than Ricky provides and that Michaela is going to provide here. Um, and so I'm going to push some arguments that I maybe don't personally believe in. I'm happy to push the arguments. No one loves a, a good debate and <laughs> certainly no one loves pushing the envelope in a debate <laughs> more than I do. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not making these against my will at all. I'm just saying that um I understand that there are real life consequences and it's probably going to come off across a little glib at times from me making my constitutional arguments or some of the other arguments that I make. I understand that there, for a lot of people out there, this isn't just a theoretical philosophical debate like it can be for me because I'm not in that position and that's probably going to be frustrating. Um, so I just want to say that I understand that with that said, I, I tried to make arguments and force Ricky and Michaela to defend their positions. And I feel good about doing that. We love you for it. Yeah. All right. So without further ado, we're going to get into the Dobbs decision. And we thought that it would be useful to run through the majority opinion, the concurrences and the dissent for people that either have just seen the decision or have just seen excerpts of different aspects of the decision on social media or traditional media or whatever, I imagine the vast majority of people out there haven't had the time or even the inclination to sit and read through every single word of these opinions. So to back up, the case in front of the Supreme Court was a Mississippi law that would have banned abortions after 15 weeks. This law would have brought Mississippi into conflict with the Supreme Court's previously established precedents in Roe, and more importantly, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which is the 1992 follow-up to Roe that we've mentioned briefly on this podcast. So in Roe, the standard the Supreme Court established was that states couldn't make any laws banning abortion pre-viability. In 92, in Casey, the court revised that to make sure that states couldn't put any laws in place that placed an undue burden on women from getting an abortion. So those were, that was the standard that was in place before this case. And so Mississippi's law was explicit about after 15 weeks, they weren't going to allow any more abortions. And what was a little bit different about Mississippi's approach in this case were, was that Mississippi asked the Supreme court explicitly to overturn Rowan Casey, which is, is something that it kind of, it kind of forced the court's hand in a number of ways, which we'll get into shortly. So as most people probably know, this was a, a 6-3 decision that was split along ideological lines. So the, the opinion was authored by Justice Alito. Uh, it was uh, signed on to by Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. So a 6-3 decision. And underpinning Justice Alito's reasoning is, and again, I guess I'll just preface all of this discussion by all of these opinions are, are excellently meticulously researched and written and well worth reading. And this is what you would expect on such, I guess on the Supreme court level in general, but on such a monumental case in particular, it's going to be picked over and 
constitutional law circles and classes for many years to come. But what, regardless of what you think of the opinions of the majority or the concurrence or the dissent, that they're very well reasoned in, in, in research. So anyway, Justice Alito goes through the history of, of abortion in the United States in, in some detail. And he, he argues that the right to abortion is not a right that was rooted in the tradition and history and liberty of this country. He then takes on the found like the foundational underpinnings of Roe, which as we've noted, and we'll note throughout this episode are incredibly weak uh, and seem to have been acknowledged as weak by both sides of, of the aisle of the spectrum of the debate for years. Roe pretty much said that the, there was a, protected right to abortion in various parts of the constitution that included the right to privacy. They mentioned the first amendment, the fourth amendment, the fifth amendment, the ninth amendment, the 14th amendment, and the quote penumbras of the constitution, which pretty much means the shadows. Essentially the court in Roe said that like, while the right to abortion isn't explicitly protected in the constitution, given everything else, the values that make up the constitution, the right to abortion should be protected. Uh, Alito comes at that hard, which conservative justices, conservative uh, lawyers have come at for, for years. It's the general consensus, but consensus, particularly amongst more conservative originalist textualist lawyers has been that Roe lacks a constitutional foundation. So after he comes after that, again, he goes through the history, he says that the right to abortion was never like rooted in the history of the country. And finally, he takes on probably the mo- most difficult aspect here, which is stare decisis, which is like, let the previous decision stand because for the rule of law to be most effective in a society, people need to know or have a pretty good idea of what the outcomes of a case could be, right? And this has long been a more conservative argument, Ricky, I'm sure you'll bring this up, is that we don't want justices just overturning precedents and laws because they personally feel like it, because then no one knows when they're going to a courtroom, what the result's going to be. It could be different in this courtroom and down the hall, we have a different judge giving a different ruling. So the perhaps the biggest barrier that Alito had to overcome was, was stare decisis and why change something that has been quote settled law for 50 years. And his argument is that look, stare decisis is super important. He acknowledges it, the majority acknowledges it, but he says, we do have a constitutional duty in this court to overturn decisions that are wrong. And he said, because Roe and Casey are so weak constitutionally, this is why just going stare decisis isn't necessary here. He, again, famously, infamously at this point says that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decision has had damaging consequences. And so he attacks stare decisis as something that we don't just adhere to blindly. We try to as much as possible because for the sake of the rule of law, but when decisions are so egregiously wrong from the start, then the court has a responsibility to overturn them. The the clear sight is to the overturning of Plessy v. Ferguson, which said a separate but equal that was overturned by the court in Brown v. Board. That's a case that the court's going to reference continuously throughout its opinion and conservatives are going to reference to like why we should overturn this case because the court does overturn bad precedent and has overturned bad precedent in the past. Ricky, I'm sure you'll have a lot to say about that, but I just, I'll kind of, I want to keep running through these these opinions here. Um, so that, that's basically the, the majority opinion that the controlling opinion here. The concurrences weren't mentioning 
so Justice Kavanaugh also goes into stare decisis, very similar reasoning. Uh, there's a reason I imagine that Kavanaugh did that because during his confirmation hearings, he was adamant that he was a believer in stare decisis. But again, that goes a lot of Alito's reasoning in that when decisions are so wrong, the court has a responsibility to overturn it. Justice Thomas's concurrence is one that's gotten a ton of traction. And Justice Thomas has long been an outlier on the court in terms of ideology. He's, he's to say he's far right wouldn't necessarily be exactly true. He just has a very particular brand, like constitutional philosophy, the way he reads the Constitution. And even amongst conservatives, like even amongst the, the Scalia's and the Rehnquist of the world, Roberts was always kind of out on an island. And what he says in his concurrence is that given the court's reasoning today, the court should go back and look at a bunch of its precedents, including the things like the right to contraception that the court established in Griswold, the right to uh, pro- to engage in sexual acts with whatever gender and however, in whatever manner you want to, that the court established in Lawrence v. Texas, and the right to marry people of whatever sex you want that the court established in Obergefell. Uh, Thomas is out there by himself on this. And a lot of people, particularly in liberal circles, have been up in arms saying like, look, the court's not done. These conservatives are not done. They've come for our abortion rights. They've already taken those. And now they're going to start looking at our contraceptive rights and our right to marry rights and our, our sexual rights. It, I guess you can say the court's already come for those sorts of things. So Thomas is, has gone, uh, gotten a lot of airtime. I will say just kind of in as a disclaimer, one, again, he's out there a little bit on his own. No one else signs on to this. Two, Thomas doesn't say that like, hey, I want to get rid of your people's right to contraception or people's right to marry homosexual partners. He says that like, look, the court's reasoning in those cases was under this umbrella of substantive due process, which he has long been against and which Alito attacks in the decision. And Thomas says, look, if, if people want to bring those cases back to the court and say that, like, look, I think that homosexual marriage should be protected under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, or that uh, right to contraception should be protected under the Ninth Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or, or other things. He said, I'm, or even like the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the of the 14th Amendment. He says, I'm open to other arguments. So I, I just don't believe that the current arguments underpinning those decisions are right and the court should look at those again. Um, so just a, a little kind of background on that. The difference, now I'm getting super constitutional lie. Uh, Alito pretty much says that like, look, liberals, you don't have to be concerned about all of like your rights going away with contraception and homosexual marriage and um, like sodomy and the way people have sex. He says that abortion is unique because it poses a moral question. And so abortion is separate from all of those other issues because abortion has this moral question of the protection of the unborn child versus those other issues, which um, don't have the same type of question. Thomas disagrees on that. All right. John Roberts, classic middleman, John, most concerned about protecting, as Ricky, you had noted earlier, the quote unquote integrity of, of the court. Roberts says that, look, he would have allowed Mississippi's law to stand and allowed abortion, allowed Mississippi to ban abortion after 15 weeks, but he would not have overturned Roe v. Casey. And he says something, and I, I've often criticized Roberts as just this like middleman who has no real 
judicial like ideology. He's his, he doesn't do his job, in my opinion, of adhering to the law and interpreting the law. He is, and again, as a chief justice, he has some response, more responsibility to do this. He's more concerned about like the court in general. And like, we've, we've seen that in the Affordable Care Act and we see it now here. But anyway, I do think his, his reasoning here or a couple lines was um, particularly interesting. So again, Roberts is, is right down the middle and he says, both the court's opinion and the dissent display a relentless freedom from doubt on the legal issue that I cannot share. And he goes on to explain why, but he pretty much says that the majority is so convinced that they are in the right here. And the dissent is so convinced that they are in the right here that neither one of them is, is moving from that position. And when we talk about the politis- politicalization of the court, this is really what we see often in Congress is just, you have people on so far apart that no one's willing to come to the middle. And this is where seen a million articles recently of like how Roberts has lost the court where he was in previous years, he might've been able to cobble together some sort of consensus like he did for the Affordable Care Act to strike down some of the more you know, odious things to conservative justices, but also to allow the general act to stand. He, what he not only was he not able to do that, he's standing alone in the middle here. He's got five justices to his right and three justices to his left who are dug in on their positions. And he's clearly lamenting that in his, in his opinion. Uh, finally, we'll get into the dissent, which relies heavily on public policy arguments. They go deeply into tracking like the real life implications of this for women everywhere. They lament the the lack of stare decisis, which they say that the conservatives have long preached, but now are being hypocritical and overturning these decisions. Uh, Their last paragraph is the one you've probably seen all over social media. If you've been on social media, uh, which is admittedly incredibly well-written with sorrow, not just for the court, but for the millions of women that will will not have these rights, we dissent. Um, I will say one thing that was interesting was they pointed to the justices who controlled in Casey, which were Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter. Um, they said they're, quote, justices of wisdom. They would not have won any contest for the kind of ideological purity some court, wa- some court watchers want justices to deliver. But if there were awards for justices who left this court better than they found it, and for those that, the reason that left this country better and the rule of law stronger, sign those justices up. They knew that the legitimacy of the court is earned over time, and they also would have recognized that it can be destroyed much more quickly. And so, Ricky, I think this is that those lines, I don't know if you had read them previously, but that's really what you were talking about earlier when you were questioning me on the legitimacy of the court. That's pretty much what the dissent says, is that, look, yeah, you might have won ideologically conservatives, but what you've won ideologically has come at the expense of legitimacy to the court, not to mention the rights and health of millions of women. Uh, Again, I'll sit back and say that this is one of those opinions I know that not very few people in the world are going to read those opinions. They're all really, they're worth reading just for the sake of being like, at least for me, I read the, the majority opinion. I'm like, damn, that is excellently well-reasoned. Very hard to disagree with that. And then you read the dissent and it's like, damn, that's also like really well put together. And so uh, I'll leave it there. I've talked long enough. Ricky, what, what were your initial reactions when the decision came down uh, obviously, we knew it was coming, but to actually see it come down, or is, is there anything in the reasoning of any of those opinions that particularly resonated or not did not resonate with you? So turn it over to you. Any reactions you have to that? Yeah, well, um, as the <clears throat> lone non-legal scholar here, I think the, I think the, I mean, yeah, I, I think the main issue that I have with 
the ruling is not really the reasoning, but the outcome, the implications um, are staggering. And, and I think, and I think both for the legitimacy of the court and obviously more importantly in this case for, uh, for women in general, the, the, I mean, we, we, we'd certainly talk at length about legit legitimacy of the court, but I guess more like philosophically, there was a feeling before that you would bring a case to the Supreme court and not know what the outcome was, right? Like you were sort of alluding to, you don't want a situation where you're walking into one court and they rule one way and you walk into a different court and the ruling is different, but the Supreme court has always held this like that's why Supreme Court precedent is the ultimate precedent. Like courts don't tend to rule against Supreme Court precedent, which sort of allows the Supreme Court to to navigate these things. But if you have a court that is sort of rewriting historical precedent, um, then all of a sudden it's it's a different ball game almost. And when you have a court that you sort of already is already predisposed to rewriting certain precedents and not other ones then all of a sudden it feel it doesn't feel like there's a legitimate reason to bring cases forward to the Supreme Court anymore. It's not, it doesn't feel like there's like an actual adjudication happening based on the facts because the outcome is already predetermined. And I think that is problematic for a court, particularly when we're talking about like lifetime appointments. I also, like, I hate the comparisons to uh, overturning Plessy versus Ferguson in this case. Like, I think there is, yes, true. You know, there, I mean, uh, you can even go back to like Dred Scott, right? Like there are obviously horrific decisions that were made by the Supreme court. Um, and to compare those to, to Roe versus Wade, I think is, is like absurd. Um, I did, I did think that one piece that you were talking about where like, um, same-sex marriage doesn't fall under the same moral question that something like abortion does. I think that that's also a little bit tenuous because both arguments tend to fall on religious lines that I don't believe in abortion. It's primarily because my faith tells me that life begins at conception, not any type of scientific fact that life begins at, at conception. And the same in the same way that you would say that I don't believe in same sex marriage because my faith tells me that 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 that's wrong. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess I guess when I really think about it, like I can't I don't know that there is another. Place that we as a society. Feel like it's okay for government to step in on a decision that does not directly impact anybody else, right? Like you see a lot of, you know, you saw conservatives bring up the my body, my choice when it comes to vaccine mandates. And I always thought that like they were very smug about pointing out this hypocrisy that people would say that, you know, access to abortion, you can say my body, my choice, but now you're forcing me to take this vaccine. And in my opinion, that's a ridiculous comparison because by my getting it or, you know, by someone getting an abortion, they don't make it any more likely for you to get an abortion. Um, whereas by someone getting a vaccine, they do make it less likely for other people to get the, to get 
sick or get a virus or whatever. So there is like a public health interest on one hand, and there's like a perfectly separate private decision. And I can't think of any other one, any other way in which we regulate what people are doing with their own bodies that has no impact on anybody else. Okay. All right. Let me, let me float this, this argument to you and see what you think about this. So the majority in the dissent are kind of talking past each other, because as I mentioned, the dissent spends most of its opinion talking about how the the rights and the health of women will be affected. And the majority spends what policy arguments they have in terms of establishing that the state could have an interest in protecting the life of an unborn child. And so one, I'm kind of curious about your take on that. Two, you say that it doesn't affect anybody else and that this is just kind of like moral decisions. And even I'm, I'm, I've been surprised how much you brought religion into this. I don't, maybe that was a little naive of me not to be more prepared to have that discussion. I think even when you're asking me about like the justice of religions, I was like, oh man, I haven't, haven't really thought about, hadn't considered that in, in the, in the context of this case, I was more just with my constitutional lens looking at it, but whether it's religion or moral, just morals in general, which you can get certainly a lot of a religious people have general morals and in terms of things that they think are right and wrong. They don't have to be rooted in some sort of religion, whatever, or whatever religion it might be. But to say that, like, if you're going to consider that at some point the child there, there is a child that, that is it is in there. And I'm not making the argument that it's right away, although you're welcome to make that argument. But I do think there is science that as science has evolved, conservatives have marshaled that science to show that like, look, we can tell when a fetal heartbeat begins. We can tell when um, a fetus starts to feel pain. We can tell when a fetus is viable. And so like all along those, those stages, we have scientific evidence of certain things about, about a fetus. And so to say that like you, the rest of the state or other people don't have an interest in that to me, how is that not analogous to like, all right, well, you know, if someone kills someone out in the street, that doesn't really like affect me. Right. Like, it's just like, all right, it's just murder. Like if I'm not philosophically or, or morally opposed to that, well, what difference does it make to me? What like to say that like morals and should never have a place in government or that the state should not protect life, I think is maybe too general. What do you think of that argument? I think that argument is, a hundred percent absurd. All right. First of all, if someone gets killed in the street to say that it doesn't affect you is ridiculous because now all of a sudden you have to reassess your probability of being killed in the street that like impacts your life. Like you can't just say like, Oh, I don't care about murder. Like notwithstanding the fact that whoever is getting murdered is having their rights violated because they are a human being person with rights because that's how we like establish things like you you don't get any other right until you get a birth and you know until you have a birth certificate and you are in this world so to say that like i don't have yeah somebody else's murder in california doesn't necessarily impact me directly doesn't mean that the government doesn't have a public interest at heart in preventing that I think I think that that's absurd to equate to abortion where one, I think a lot of the I and I wish we did have a medical expert on here because I think a lot of the conservative science around fetal heartbeats and um, 
and like when fetuses can feel pain, I think a lot of that is kind of junk science. And there is, there's a lot of debate around like at what point is a, a fetus viable. Most of that is like, like 10 weeks, if not 20 weeks beyond when a lot of these new abortion laws are coming in. Like, I think general consensus around like any kind of viability outside of the womb is like 20 to 24 weeks, maybe. And we're talking about laws that are somewhere between six and 15 weeks. Um, Again, like without, you know, if somebody is murdered, that's something that like people would know they would have family or you know, somebody would know them ostensibly. And I'm not, obviously there are certain people who don't have any family and I'm not saying that it's okay to kill them. But if a woman on her own gets an, and gets an abortion and she hasn't told anybody about this or like, there is literally no implication on anybody else's life until like it's a, and, and I'm not saying that she can't announce a pregnancy and then and then decide later that, no, I can't, I, I don't want to go through with this for any, whatever reason. To say that that, I, again, like, I really don't think there is a parable, um, a parable situation. And I, and I, and I agree, there is a certain um, component that governments do have an interest in, in, like, in these sort of moral questions, but they really have an interest in protecting rights of people that are here. And, and in, in such a way that they're not infringing on anybody, uh, you know, anyone else's rights in, in doing so. And I think, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's an important distinction. I just, I don't know. I don't know. I, for me, this issue really like gets to me because I feel like it just, as a conservative, you have to twist yourself into a pretzel in order to think about how government has the right to to do this, but not something like masks or something like vaccines. Like I, I just don't understand how for all of like the freedom of choice, like again, someone's right to access an abortion doesn't do anything to anybody else's rights at all. So how, like, how, like, how do you just reconcile it? I don't, I just don't, I don't follow. Sure. And sure. I, yeah. And there are things that people like, you know, vegans don't eat meat, like in their morality, like meat is murder. Right. So if, if like, there are enough of them, would we ever come to a point as a society where you can say that like, no, 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 we're, we're banning meat because that's like, uh, you know, it's because that, that, you know, these personal decisions, like how do we, I don't know, that's probably not even a good analogy, but uh, it's like, so it, I'm just trying to figure out like how, I don't think there's any other question that is analogous. I just, yeah, I don't know. Okay. So I want to transition slightly into some of the polling that we've seen, because I think a lot of the narrative certainly in the bubbles up here and in the Northeast or on the left in general, is that like, look, this is this small group of judge, judges or, or senators or whomever, the tyranny of the minority that are making these laws that the vast majority of, of people don't agree with. So uh, Vox, this is just taken from a Vox article, which was published um, June 24th in, in reference to a Pew study. So Pew is one of, if not the best uh, polling place in, in the United States. So 
Uh, Pew does find that a sizable majority of Americans said abortion should be legal if a woman's health is at stake, 73%, or if the pregnancy was a result of rape or interest, 69%. Uh, When it gets to like, should it be legal if the baby was likely to be born with disabilities or health issues, 54%. Uh, But then when we talk about like the stage of pregnancy, so if we break it down, in the first six weeks of pregnancy, 51% said abortion should be generally legal, 26% said it should be illegal. 24 weeks into pregnancy, though, only 29% said it should be legal, while 42% said it should be generally illegal. And so, Ricky, I I feel like you're a little bit just kind of like painting with a broad brush here and saying that, like, look, that abortion, it's infringing on people's rights. People should have abortions whenever they feel like it is their right to do so. You say no? No. Okay, so you agree that there is a point where you would say, unless the woman's health is at stake, we should not be having abortions. Uh, I don't know that I would go that far, but I think, I think there is a reasonable point after which we can have a discussion, right? Like historically eugenics and things like that are, we're basically through selective abortion. Like yeah. I think that that is a fair, a fairer point. And also like once we've gotten beyond the point of of viability, like 24 weeks. So six months into the pregnancy, we're talking about kind of a different situation, but none of these laws, these new laws have anything to do with that. Sure. Okay. I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I just want to, I want to take that premise of like, there's a certain point that I think the vast majority of Americans would say that like, look, I'm not super comfortable with people having abortions again, unless the woman's life is at stake, which I believe every state does provide exceptions for what the woman's life is at stake. And again, if I were making these laws, there would be except there would be other exceptions in there. But if we establish that there is a line where people are generally not comfortable with with people having abortions, again, unless the woman's life is at stake, then I think that line becomes up for debate. And so you say 24 weeks for you after 24 weeks, potentially you're a little uncomfortable after that point. But who are you to say that in Mississippi, they're uncomfortable after 15 weeks in Texas, they're uncomfortable after six. Shouldn't they be able to make their own laws if that's if everyone's going to draw a line somewhere? Why is your line the right line to say what should happen in Mississippi or Texas? Yeah, I mean, at at the end of the day, Roe versus Wade didn't protect abortion through the end of the pregnancy, and neither does Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Like both of them use that viability as a standard, right? And that is not again, and I think that that is more of us. There's more of a scientific consensus around that than there is about like my opinion. I'm not like arbitrarily picking 24 weeks. Uh, that That is like a relatively understood by the time we get into the third trimester, there are, you know, premature babies are born in that time frame and they like can survive. I think, yeah, I mean, I, like, you know, we're talking about laws in Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Kentucky, Louisiana that have no exceptions for rape or incest, which was a very, like, commonly understood reason that, like, a- at any point you could do that and you-, you could have an abortion then. And, like, you know, we talk about the health of the mother being at a- in-, in the equation, and I think... Yeah, I mean, I at the end of the day, here's here's like I might feel queasy about abortions after 24 weeks. I still don't know that I would say that people shouldn't be allowed to have them. And this is kind of my reasoning. One, 
abortions in general, like nobody wants them, right? It's not like, it's not like taxing a bad where like, we're trying to make people less likely to do this thing because we think it's like a, a moral hazard the way like, you know, people are enjoying cigarettes, but like, we don't think it's like good for them. So we make it harder for them to get cigarettes. Like nobody is actively out here seeking to have an abortion. So whatever someone's personal reasons are for doing that, again, I don't think it concerns anybody else. And like, I might not feel comfortable after 24 weeks. And like, if I, you know, and obviously I'm a man, so I don't ever have to make this decision. So at at the end of the day, whatever someone's personal opinion on it is, is should be their guiding principle. Like I've gotten to 25 weeks and now I think this is no longer appropriate. That's fine. Like I don't, at, at the end of the day, I don't, even if I wouldn't support it, that doesn't mean that I feel like I have any say in the matter. And I think that that's how we should govern. Sure. I think that that's a totally fair, legitimate opinion. I, I think that it, I would also argue it's a fair opinion to say that at some point states have interests in, in when. But, but why? A, because there's a potential like life here. And if we're going to say that states have interest in people's but lives. Potential life, I mean, I, and like in terms of like, again, how conservatives turn themselves into pretzels here. It's like, how are you, how is, how is this just like the pro pre-birth party? Like once, once you're born, then you're on your own. If you don't get education, if you don't get healthcare, like all these things like don't matter. But like the fact that you have to be born into this society, like is, is wild to me. Okay. Great, great question or point in general. And I've thought about this because I think all of those things where it's like, all right, the place where we don't have paid family leave and we don't have free education and we don't give people great housing or health care or, or food insecurity, all of those things, they're legitimate, but they're not mutually exclusive to say that, like, look, I think that the state should protect the interest of this unborn child. And also to say that states need to do a far better job of providing for paid family leave and vacation and, uh, and health care for people and housing for people. Those are all legitimate things. We should be doing all of those things. What's wrong with that? But the problem is you have a party that is only interested in one. And only interested in one. Then fine, let's do better. Like let, let's let's do all of us do better to protect all children. In this Not country. all of us. Like there 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 is a specific party that prevents all of those things. Like uh, what was it for the baby formula shortage? Right. Like conservatives are the one that held up the bill to try and like increase access to baby formula during that shortage. Like twenty eight million dollars. Like some paltry amount in comparison to like what was going on in the country. And to say that like. Oh, I mean, uh, these things are not mutually like to me, it's not hypocritical to like start at birth and then go to the end of, you know, end of time in terms of what the government should be providing in terms of basic needs. It is hypocritical, however, to say that the government has to require birth and then after the fact has no responsibility in terms of what happens like that doesn't make any sense. No, I, I hear you. I'm, I'm telling you that I, I think that the government should be doing more to allow for more children to grow up in better situations. I just don't think those are mutually exclusive to try to protect and, and encourage and, and have more protect people's lives and then protect the lives both right before they're born and right after they're born. We should try to be do, doing both of those things. All right. I want to I want to pivot quickly because there's been so much uh, anti like uh, antipathy hurled at these six justices, um, particularly from 
all sides, but I would say uh, a number of particularly loudmouth people in on the far left in Congress. And so my question for you, Ricky, is 50 years. Roe Ro has, has been law in, this, in the Supreme Court for 50 years. Congress over those 50 years had ample opportunities to enshrine, enshrine this right into law. And so I want to just do a, a quick little history lesson. Um, so they've, they've, they've tried before. Um, and so when we talk about after Roe is 1973, uh, so 49 years, I guess, uh, coming up in the 50th next year, uh, there's debate about whether they should enshrine it in law and like codify it through Congress, pretty much say no. Um, after that, 76, just three years later, Congress for the first time approves what's known as the Hyde Amendment, which bars federal dollars from uh, to provide for abortions, including through Medicaid. More Democrats than Republicans voted for it. Of course, there's uh, a shift in alignment happening. Um, but but that's that's established in 76. So you immediately after Rose decided Congress's first act on abortion is actually to limit federal funds for abortions. So then it comes up in uh, 92 again. Democrats control at this point. It's pretty like ideologically aligned. Republicans are the pro-life party. Democrats are the pro-choice party. 92, Clinton sweeps into office. He has majorities, uh, extensive majorities in both the House and Senate. They they debate uh, whether or not they should uh, enshrine Roe, but disagreements in their own party remains and the legislation just never happens. Again, this, this happens uh, throughout throughout like the early 90s obviously once uh the republicans come back into power uh there's the next congressional action on this is the partial birth the partial birth abortion ban act which is signed into law by president bush in in 2003 it's a bipartisan bill that's backed by 218 republicans 63 democrats in the in the house 47 republicans and 17 democrats in the in the senate and even up to recent years, obviously after the leak draft of of Roe came of uh, of Dobbs came out, the Senate immediately said, "Well, we can enshrine it right now. Well, if we just choose to get rid of the, rid of the filibuster, they put it up for vote. They only have forty six votes in the Senate. So, for all the consternation that, that these lawmakers are hurling at the Supreme Court right now, where's like the lawmaker accountability for like, yeah, you had all of this time to do it, and and you either didn't do it or couldn't do it." Yeah, that I mean that that's that's a good question. I think we talk a lot about like political capital in terms of like how much you can realistically get done, regardless of like how, like what majorities that you have, like there's still only a certain amount of legislation that you're going to get passed in a certain period. And I think it's hard to say when Roe is in existence that and we believe in the Supreme Court's ruling that we should need to then further create legislation to do something that is already in place in law and recognized by the highest court in the land. Oh, above and beyond or like over other pieces of legislation that we have to pass. Like it would be hard to go back to the constituents and say, look at this huge achievement we did in 1992 to codify this thing that was settled in 1970. Like to me, like I, I don't hold them as responsible because it's like solving for a problem that many could say was already solved. Now, you know, you can argue about the, uh, 
the tenuous nature of Roe and the ruling and like the reasoning was not, you know, immaculate and clearly picked apart in, in many ways in this recent opinion. But to say that like, oh, you wasted all this time, you could have done it. You, why didn't you do it? And it's like, well, it was already done. Like, why would we spend all like in, you know, an entire term haggling over it? Because like, as you said, there are, there are a lot of, there is of course, you know, pro-abortion access and anti-abortion access, but then there are like nuances in between, which take time to settle. And to say that after Roe versus Way, that this is going to be a priority, I think would be difficult. And, and I, and I don't disagree. And I mean, I think it bears noting also that like, there are just a lot of men debating this question. And quite frankly, it, it shouldn't be that way. And like, you can look at the makeup of Congress in the nineties. And I, I would bet to you that there are like 10 women in the room of this and they may have differing opinions too, but at the end of the day, like it, it, it's just, yeah. I mean, unfortunately like our systems and our ideals. And I feel like I come back to this a lot, get betrayed by the people who we entrust to like uphold them because they don't always really reflect the broader consensus of society, which at the end of the day, even if you want to quibble around, is it 55% or is it 60%? I think some access to abortion, right? Like we're, you know, we're looking at the closure of abortion clinics in these States full stop, which means that like, whether you say it at one week or 15 weeks or 19 weeks doesn't matter because there's no place for you to get it anymore now all of a sudden, like, what are we, you know, what are we doing here? Sure. Um, just, just to kind of wrap this discussion a little bit uh, before we get into Michaela's interview. I think what I wanted to, and I think we all acknowledge this, was that abortion wasn't such a controversial issue in the United States until after the road decision. That's when really you have this activism that, that springs up on the right in particular in, in response to this and is largely one of the driving reasons for the, the split in the parties today. It's again, it wasn't necessarily a, a political issue in general and certainly not a, a party line ideological issue like it has become now. It's very difficult to be pro-life as a Democrat. It's very difficult to be pro-choice as a Republican. Now it's, it's one of the defining issues like what, like a litmus test really for, for those parties. But it didn't, that wasn't the case. Uh, 73, the road decision comes along Many people on the right in particular would argue it's an activist court that's making the laws for for states, for people that didn't want these laws. And then you saw all of a sudden start to have like the, you know, the March for Life and all of these, like the, the college groups, the high school groups that start to, to spring up. And it's been a, a 49 year trek for these people that have been, many people have dedicated their whole lives to overturning this. And this is a moment of great happiness for them. They know they have a lot more work to do, but for them, as much as it's been a moment of uh, great sadness and outrage for many people, there's also this segment of the American population that feels like vindicated after 50, almost 50 years of, of working towards this. And that's kind of what I want to push at, which like Alito brings this up in his reasoning as well, where he says that, look, as far from settling the national debate over abortion, Roe really inflamed it. And all of a sudden you have not only the Hyde Amendment and the partial birth of it, like those acts coming out of Congress, but then you have states 
passing increasingly restrictive laws on abortion. You have all of these groups who are lobbying and marching and, and protesting and all of these things. And um, well, we talked about this and we will talk about it more like potentially this is the galvanizing force on, on the left, where, as you said, understandably, pro-choice people felt a little complacent given the last 49 years. Now that the Supreme Court is turning this back over to state legislatures, it's up to the voters, the people, whether that's at the state level, to protect access to, to women's right to access abortions or at the federal level, if you wanted to codify it in law or potentially have a constitutional amendment down the line, I understand that these are one, not easy things and two are not going to be accomplished next year or maybe even in five years, but this is potentially the, the shift to energize. And I think we've seen that in the last few weeks. The question is like, does that sustain into the kind of momentum and do people on the left have the sort of patience that people on the right had for the last 49 years. So um, yeah. any final thoughts with that? I, I mean, I, I think that that is um, a great point. I, I think the problem of course, is that like everybody knows what the makeup of this court is and that they know that Coney Barrett is like under 50 and like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are going to be alive for like 30 to 40 more sure, years. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. But like, I think the, the message is that you can't rely on the courts anymore. This is, this is now strictly a political issue. Yeah, no, no. Okay. All right. So f- fair enough. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the thing, I guess the thing that could be good about it is that maybe we'll, yeah we will have a more explicit solution um or yeah a more explicit piece of legislation to to deal with this and then yeah politicians views on this will become more important because they hadn't been in the past i, I mean i think that that is definitely true i think the sad part is it took you know 50 years to get to this point um and it's sort of all been undone and it may take another 50 years to get to potentially the ideal situation given our current state of politics. And I think that this is, I think that's, yeah. And then there will be a lot of women who unfortunately sort of suffer the consequences of that between now and and when we get it right. And I think that that is, um, that's very sad. Well, I think it's it's beyond past time to bring a female voice into this. So let, let's uh, bring in Michaela and, and have some of these conversations with her. Yeah, let's do it. We are very excited to welcome uh, my good friend, Michaela Louie, to the podcast today to talk about um, to talk about this case and, and really her thoughts about what's been going on. So just a very brief background about Michaela. So she lives out in uh, the great state of Washington on the West Coast. So as is our custom, we're, we're pretty late here on the East Coast, but we, we got uh, some good company for us. Um, she, went to, she went with me to college at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, um, and is married to one of my very good friends, Jacob Gelb. Um, she went to law school at the University of Washington and now practices um, in the Seattle area, um, assisting healthcare facilities and providers um, with managing uh, sort of the regulatory landscape. And so I thought no better person to share both her personal perspective on what's been going on, as well as um, some legal insights, I think, um, as well, in terms of, you know, what she thinks about the 
the opinions, but also in terms of what she thinks about the implications for um, the recent ruling in, in the Dobbs versus Jackson case. Um, so without further ado, a uh, very well, uh, big welcome to Michaela. Thanks for having me. All right. Yeah. And we, so we'll, sorry, Ricky, I cut you off already, but uh, we threw this out on our Instagram being like, if anybody has any thoughts, if anybody has any ideas or suggestions for like, we're going to talk about this. I know there's a lot of hot feelings. Feel free to shoot us a message. And one message that we got was you should have a female perspective on the show. And we were like, <laughs> yep, that's right. And so Michaela, thank you so much for providing one of those perspectives uh, for this episode. Yeah, uh, this is um, def- <laughs> definitely one uh, that, you know, uh, while we do have our own thoughts about a, a lot of these things from different perspectives without uh, without a female voice in, in here, we'd really be missing um, sort of the important voice in this story, the people who it's uh, impacting the most. Um, so, Michaela, I'd, you know, I'd love to start off with just uh, a little bit about your background. Uh, like, I'm ashamed to say that over the years, I've really never asked you too much about um, kind of your work and your interests in in law, but I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're up to. Sure. Um, so I had sort of a, a windy path to the law, um, as I think many, many do these days, but um, I was always interested in politics and, you know, I interned at the Capitol in Madison in college. Um, but when we graduated, of course, it was sort of a precarious time. We were just kind of coming back from the recession and I was, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And many of my friends at that time went straight to law school and um, are now disgruntled lawyers, corporate lawyers. Um, and I, I took a different path. I uh, lived abroad for a year. I worked, uh, I taught English in China and I, I worked for an NGO in India. Um, and then upon moving back home, I um, worked for a nonprofit organization for about five years. Um, and in that space, I did mostly training and consulting around issues of health equity and language access with um, hospitals and health systems and uh, state departments of health around the country. So that's where I sort of started to to um, become much more familiar with the U.S. healthcare system um, and those types of clients. And I should say, too, my whole family is in medicine. So uh, both my parents were physicians, my sister's an optometrist. And so I, I didn't have an appetite, you know, to go to medical school uh, or, you know, work with bloods and blood and guts and all that stuff. Um, so the law was sort of my, my path um, to be involved in that field in that space um, because of my familiarity and and my passion for it. And yeah, so then I, I decided to go to law school. I just took a leap of faith and said, um, I think, especially as I was advising clients at that time when I was at the nonprofit, the ACA had been enacted. There were a whole suite of new laws and particularly anti-discrimination laws and language access things um, that the Obama administration was going to be enforcing differently. And I felt like I really needed to have expertise if I was going to advise and consult um, clients on those issues. And so law school is where I ended up. I'm very fortunate to have gone to UW, the other UW um, here in Washington State, and they have a health law program. So I was able to focus sort of my legal education in, in health law. 
And then I've been practicing now for about three years. Um, and like you said, I work with uh, mostly public hospitals, um, some some private provider groups as well, um, and other entities. Um, but I'll say now that anything I express today on the podcast is not, you know, related to my work or any particular client. Um, it's just really my own personal views um, on the issue. Yeah, and that's perfect. Exactly what we're after, and a very nice legal disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I actually should start off with that as, as well. <laughs> These expressed opinions are mine and mine alone. Um, well, I mean, I, I think that background does though really lend itself to a lot about what we're going to be talking about today. But I guess before we start um, kind of diving into it, I, I just want to get a sense of like what you're feeling today now a couple of days removed what you were like how you found out what you were sort of feeling when you first found out um yeah talk, like talk me through it a little bit well I, I take a deep breath because um it's a lot it's emotional um I think when I saw the news break a, a few days ago on Friday morning um you know, I wasn't surprised because we had the draft opinion that was leaked. We knew based on the composition of the court, this was very likely. Um, so I, it wasn't a feeling of surprise. It was just more a feeling of not, not panic per se, but just, it was heavy. Um, it's a nightmare scenario for so many women, um, for providers. Um, and, and that's what I like went to immediately. Um, I personally have so many women in my life who I know, um, have sought abortion care for such a wide variety of reasons. Um, and just thinking about those scenarios and thinking about women who are currently experiencing that, who are now stripped of the ability to, to take that course of action. Um, that was just like, it was just gutting. It just gutted me. Um, and yeah, I'm still, I still feel emotional about it because I, you know, as I'm sure many of you have heard the stories coming out of some of the States who just like shut down that morning. Right. And the women who are scheduled to have procedures and the impact that it's had already. Um, it's just devastating. Yeah. Um, I, I, I totally felt sort of the same way. It was like, you knew that this was coming, um, you know, definitely from the draft opinion, but it was sort of the writing was, had been on the wall for a while. And I, and I guess, you know, people have, who are proponents of abortion um, access um, have sort of been sounding the alarm from, you know, one Supreme court justice after the other. And I wonder a, a little bit, does it feel sort of different? I mean, obviously it, the situation is very different now, but like, you know, one could argue once the Supreme Court went to that 5-4 majority or even, and of course, when it went to 6-3, that like, then there was 
really no hope for this left, but there wasn't that sort of impending sense of, I don't know if doom is the right word, sort of feeling, or at least I didn't feel that as someone who like is a proponent of these things, but it doesn't feel like that is a huge driving force in, in my life. And I'm wondering um, if, if it's, if it was similar for you or if maybe this has sort of just been a culmination of kind of like a, a a miserable uh, sort of, yeah, long-term kind of feeling. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, like you said, this was decades in the making. This was a deliberate um, strategy by anti-abortion advocates. And, you know, as soon as, I mean, it was a cascading effect, right, of, of a series of events that happened that led us to here. So we could go back and think about McConnell blocking the, the Merrick Garland nomination. We could go to the 2016 election. I mean, there's just so many things that have happened that have led to this. And I think, um, you know, I don't think it was a foregone conclusion. I think, um, however, I'll say as soon as the individuals who were nominated and um, appointed to the court um, became evident and what their views likely were, despite what they may have said to certain senators, um, you know, I think it was pretty clear. And for for what it's worth, I think um, the Chief Justice, you know, despite my own personal feelings on him, um, does care about the court's legitimacy and does, you know, was very, um, was, has been much more measured. Like if you read the ACA opinion, right, um, that was a mess of an opinion. And many, many people who are much smarter than I am have opined on, you know, that it was, it was originally in dissent and then, you know, it got changed last minute and, um, to kind of like uphold the legitimacy of the court and not strike down this very popular um, law that would have a lot of positive impact. Um, but that's sort of a tangent to say, um, you know, I don't think we knew until we saw the doctor opinion. Um, once that was leaked, I think it was yeah pretty clear. Um, and I think for people like, for women like myself, like I live in a state, I live in the state of Washington, right? We are likely, we are a state that will, I, at least at the moment, have confidence that we will protect a woman's right to an abortion, that we will likely be a sanctuary state for abortion care, um, like for, to our neighboring state, Idaho, for example. Um, so, so the decision doesn't impact me directly in that way. Like I know that I could, or my closest friends and families who live in this state could, could still seek abortion care. Um, but so like, there's some relief in that in a way, but then I'm, I'm left completely heartbroken for women who live in other states and particularly women who have lot, who lack resources in other ways. Um, and that's right. Most likely black and brown women, um, who live in, you know, rural areas, um, in red states. So, uh, in that sense, 
it doesn't change that. And then, you know, people have been talking about, well, then now there could, there's a prospect of a federal ban happening if, if things fall a certain way. And, and the, the, that's a very real, scary, horrifying, you know, thought. So, yeah. So I'm glad you brought up, obviously you live in Washington, we live here in Massachusetts, and I, I heard the same consternation, the, the heaviness that you mentioned a lot amongst a lot of people that I'm really close with here in Massachusetts. And my first reaction was kind of like, well, like your life, your personal life hasn't really changed at all. And so I understand like there's now like that, that kind of boogeyman out there, like you mentioned that it, it could change in the future for sure. But like at the moment, knock on wood, we live in states where abortion is, is still legal and protected. Obviously, you feel strongly about it for one side, but I think you would admit that there are clearly a, a large portion of the United States that feels strongly on the other side. And there are people that are entrenched in both ways feeling like, hey, we're on the right here. Like, and so while you feel this grief for women in red states, I think that there are a lot of people in red states that feel grief for unborn children in blue states. So from that perspective, why shouldn't Washington do what it wants, Massachusetts do what it wants, and Texas do what it wants, and Alabama do what it wants? Like, what, what's, why is that such a, a problem for our pro-choice people when there are clearly really strong opinions on both sides? So I have two thoughts on that. Um, first, first thought is you, you said a large portion of people. Um, I think from the polling that I've seen, and maybe it needs to be dug down a little bit deeper, but from the polling that I've seen, like 73% of Americans support abortion care, um, to some extent. Right. And so I think we need to be clear about, you know, saying some large majority of people, um, are anti-abortion. So that's like one, one thing. The second thing is um, an opinion, opinion about the protection of an unborn child. That is an assumption, and that is an assumption that I, I believe um, is, is one of the most problematic things about this whole debate. One of the most problematic things about the opinion is that there's an assumption, or I should say not even an assumption, a belief that there's a state interest in an unborn child. Um, because that's not a scientific or a legal um, concept. That's a moral and religious belief that an unborn, not even a fetus, but an unborn like collection of cells um, that is an embryo um, has some rights. And, and that's where I think, you know, this, this debate goes completely off the rails. Um, and that's fine. If, if you believe that, like, if you believe that that unborn human, as you put it, um, is that is an unborn human and <laughs> has rights and um, has personhood or whatever you want to say, um, fine, great. I don't believe that. And so, and many people in your state don't believe that. 
And even if you do believe that based on a religious belief, um, I don't think that should be imposed on anyone else. Um, and in fact, I'll just share personally, um, I'm Jewish. And as a Jewish woman, um, Jewish law, generally speaking, for the most part, provides that a woman's life should be prioritized over a fetus. Um, and so, again, it's just, I, I think, yeah, it's sort of, we get, we get confused and conflated when, when anti-abortion um, advocates talk about, you know, potential life or unborn life or whatever, um, because it raises a lot of morality questions. I don't deny that, but that, in my opinion, you know, doesn't have any, doesn't have, shouldn't have any bearing on, on government, um, imposition. Yeah. I like, you know, to, to retweet that it's rights of a, like a living, breathing person who <laughs> is here and rights of something that some, I, I feel like it's fair to say something because at the stages that we're talking about sub 15 weeks, it's not even really anything. And I think one of the things that was interesting for me that I really didn't look into Roe v. Wade or Casey versus uh, Planned Parenthood in the past that, I mean, we're not talking about abortion without any limitations at all. Um, what we're you know, the, the viability construct is something that had always been applied. And I think, and I think this is actually one area that I'm curious, Michaela, what your thoughts are here. Um, because one of the things that I felt like if there were any silver linings to this, um, and, and Kelly would probably agree with me here is that Roe has always been tenuous from the get, um, states, red states have been doing different things to kind of skirt um, kind of the intent of Roe, which was to guarantee access to uh, abortion care um, for decades, basically since its inception. Um, there have been rule, you know, rules made around giving federal money to uh, provide abortions to those who can't afford it. Um, and all, like all sorts of state wide regulations that, I mean, there's been a lot made of like the last abortion clinic in Mississippi because it's the only abortion clinic in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I don't, you know, from, from the left perspective, if there is a positive here, is this a re-energizing moment um, where there's been a lot of complacency uh, for people like me, you know, maybe not across the board, but um I think we've needed more energy in, in this issue, as you said, as you said, decades in the making. Um, how do you think about that? And then we'll like, we'll dovetail this into another question, um, which I think Kelly would probably also want to ask is what do you think about the legal sort of ground that, you know, regardless of the implications, does the reasoning of the court make sense to you? Yeah. So for the first question, um, you know, will this be a galvanizing issue? I, I would expect it to be, I hope it is. Um, but 
the Democratic Party has let me down over and over and over again um, in that regard and its ability to mobilize. Um, so, you know, we'll see. I mean, I can't, I can't predict that. I, I would think it would be. I know, you know, there's a lot of activity right now, I think, um, in the wake of the absolute horrific tragedy of Uvalde, um, there was there was real activism that happened following that, right? And we've seen some some action and response. Um, so I think we'll see. Um, but there's some real there's real things at stake right now. So I hope that I hope it does. I hope this really gets people um, more involved. Uh, so, but I don't know. We'll see. Um, the second question. Yeah, on the reasoning. I think, so I have not, full disclosure, I've not read the full opinion. Um, I skimmed the syllabus before this call. So I like generally understand um, Alito's arguments. I think you you said that you thought Roe was tenuous from the get. Um, I think many people felt that way. I think whether or not the right to privacy and then therefore the right to abortion was properly within 14th Amendment due process, like, I don't know, I'm not a constitutional scholar, like, I'm not, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. Um, Could it, you know, one of my, one of my law school classmates actually um, shared that he, he thinks it really should be within the Ninth Amendment. Um, which I thought was interesting. Um, and that, you know, and, and Brandon, Brandon is shaking his head. So um, maybe there's some traction there. Uh, and that's sort of broad, um, you know, right to people. Um, um, and I don't know really what the jurisprudence is on the night anyway. Um, but like I said, going back to, you know, the court essentially applied rational basis review and in 14th amendment jurisprudence, there's these levels are sort of with no, like they apply this thing called rational basis review. Then there's like an intermediate review and a strict scrutiny review. Um, and strict scrutiny is reserved for fundamental rights. And so in those cases, right, like, like the right to um, religious freedom or other things, um, the state has to have a really compelling reason why they're going to regulate that or put some res- legal restrictions on it. Um, well, in, in the court here said, well, there's no fundamental right to an abortion, period, because there's no history and tradition of abortion that can be found and, you know, all of that. Um, so they applied rational basis and they said there's a state interest or states can find an interest in potential life. And therefore, I think, I think, and don't, I think that's sort of what the reasoning is. Um, and again, I go back to what I said earlier, like to assume that there's a state interest in potential life, um, is in my opinion, a, a religious and moral belief. Um, and so 
yeah, I think I just disagree with that. Yeah, I mean, it it seems it feels like for people who are, I mean, there is like whatever the state's rights camp, but it feels like for people who are actually actively anti-abortion and abortion access, it is it's like always tied to a religious belief. There is no like practical or non-religious reason for feeling this way about things that like really just can't, couldn't possibly affect you. Right. Right. And I mean, if you take that, like for, well, if you take it further, then I, I think, well, let me back up. I think it also is at odds with other people's religious rights. And I believe I saw, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I believe I saw that there has been a case filed in Florida um, by a Jewish woman that says that, you know, their abortion restrictions are in violation of her religious freedom. Um, And so I would be very interested, very curious to see if that were to ever reach the Supreme Court level, which who knows, like that, that's very long and, um, very speculative like exercise um but this court that's like pretty obsessed with religious freedom at the moment um but a particular brand of religious freedom um when you put that up against abortion ban how do you how do you balance it and and you know i think that would be a much harder question for them to answer. Now, if they did, if they did decide, this is all very hypothetical, hypothetical, but if they did decide, okay, um, you know, there, there has to be some religious exception to these abortion bans. Well, that's limited, right? Because then you have to prove or you have to demonstrate that you have a sincerely held religious belief. Now, if you think about back just a few months ago, um, many people had sincerely held religious beliefs that they should not get a vaccine when they were mandated to do so. And courts were very reluctant, or at least I think people were very reluctant to sort of um, scrutinize what people's sincerely held religious beliefs were. So I don't know, that could be in the future a path, but I, yeah, that's all just speculation. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things where it feels like, you know, re- Republicans or this particular movement um, within conservatism was very deliberate in terms of, I mean, there have been longstanding challenges, but they knew, you know, when to, to sort of strike when the proverbial iron was hot and when the, when the, uh, <laughs> when the judges were looking a little bit more favorably. Um, I'll just... Again- Sorry, yeah. I just want to hop in quickly on the, on the legal reasoning because, Mikhail, I, I've heard that same case, which I think would be a fascinating case, a First Amendment case for Jewish women or potentially people of other religion, women of other religions to make a case for their right to religious freedom that would allow them to have an abortion. I think that's super interesting. You brought up the Ninth Amendment. I'm a huge fan of the Ninth Amendment. I think the Ninth Amendment would be a really interesting place to start protecting some of these like 
on enumerated rights. Great point. You could make a decent 13th Amendment argument here, I think, against like forced servitude. My, my take is, and Ricky, we talked about this, is that Roe was decided on the 14th Amendment, which to me seems there's no legal, real legal basis. And for the current makeup of the court, they also seem to think that there's no legal basis for it. And so like, this has been the problem with Roe since it was, as you mentioned, since it was decided and why Alito now infamously or famously said that Roe was egregiously wrong when it was decided is because the legal precedent is, is terrible. Um, and so I, I don't disagree. And even, I don't know if we want to get into Thomas's concurrence now or, or not, but like Thomas is pretty much like, look, all of these other rights that go along with it, we're talking Lawrence and Obergefell and uh, I don't know what else I'm missing in, in there, but uh, he was pretty much saying like, look, if you want to bring these cases back and see if there are other places in the constitution that protect these rights, I'm willing to hear those arguments. But to say that abortion is protected by substantive due process, which is something that was just totally invented by the 14th amendment. Absolutely not. And so from like a purely legal reasoning point of view, I couldn't agree more with the majority. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think I think though, and again, not a constitutional scholar or lawyer. So, um, but the they're looking at liberty, right? And the word liberty and what that meant and what it means. And I think there can be arguments made both ways. And so, yeah, the whole the whole substantive due process doctrine and jurisprudence, like it it. It was, it may not have been the best place, but I think since it was there, I think the dissent's, the dissent's point is don't disrupt this now. Um, and you don't have a good enough reason to disrupt it. So, I mean, I think that that's like the crux of the issue that the Supreme Court doesn't live in a vacuum. And so, well, one, I think there's been, I mean, there have been a number of challenges where other judges have sort of read this case. I mean, yeah, you can look at Casey versus Planned Parenthood, right? Where they essentially said like, yeah, we can amend some of this, but there is a history, there is a precedent here. And there are big consequences to basically saying that we're throwing these things out. And obviously we've had historical reasons to do things like bad Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson, but even that, right? Like Brown versus board of education is also like a 14th amendment separate cannot be equal. But I mean, like if you read the reasoning that it cannot be equal, it doesn't make a ton of legal sense. Uh, I think we all agree, like as a society, that this was a, a huge step forward and to have a court just say, well, I don't, I don't follow this technically under the 14th amendment. So we're going to take society backwards because of this like technicality. I think I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily know that that makes sense from like a, there's, there's gotta be some kind of practical understanding of the implication of the ruling. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, that's the thing is the court has never, taken away rights they have expanded rights and as i think the dissent puts that context out there right for for both the cases of the majority sites to to sort of the um the import of overturning precedent and and when and why certain rulings should be overruled um but those were all instances where one of them was uh, minimum wage and the other was, um, you know, um, desegregation. 
So both had, like we said, an expansion of rights, um, and this is stripping rights. So just from a practical sense, um, they're different in kind. And yeah. Sure. I don't disagree with a lot of what you said there. I would say it's, uh, you know, it's easier to strip a, a quote unquote right that the court really invented out of thin air 50 years ago. But, but I not- think, but, but I think, so the thing is like inventing out of thin air, um, <laughs> a lot of rights are, I mean, is contraception in the constitution is, is an AR 15 in the constitution. Like there's so many things that are implied in, in constitutional law. And the court did that literally the day before, two days before by implying rights. And so to, to go back to this like strict scrutiny and then go back to this sort of like implied rights and, and go back and forth and pick and choose. I think that's where, um, where folks have completely lost confidence in, in the court. Sure. I, I just, for the record, I don't think they're picking and choosing, um, but I, I understand that that is a, a point that a lot of people have lost confidence in the court because they think they are, but I think they're being entirely consistent. Yeah. And if we think about the arms that people are guaranteed in the second amendment and what the founding fathers thought of when they thought of arms, everyone should get a front loading musket and nothing else. Sorry. (laughs) Disagree. I mean, I'm just curious too, like, um, what your thoughts are, Brandon, 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 right. On, um, on, on the entire like constitutional analysis and relying so heavily on what we think the founding fathers thought um, at the time they thought it and whether or not there's a foundation to believe that um, they were establishing a nation of progress um, and that they potentially would have um, agreed that as things change throughout time, so should the law. Yeah. And I think that there is ways to change that. And it's called like a constitutional amendment process, which is why we've changed it repeatedly over the years. Like, why do we have equal rights for all races? Because we have the 13th, 14th, and 15th. Why do we have equal rights for genders? Because we got the 19th. So if, if my, my point is that like the founders, to your point, did anticipate that we would be a nation of progress and they gave us the tools to make that progress. If a majority of the country and an overwhelming majority, like a lot of people claim, really were so in favor of providing abortion access, they could have codified it any time in the last 50 years. Even after this draft opinion came out, the Senate tried to pass something and only got 46 votes. Sure, you want to say that, oh, that's a flaw of the Senate. But I'm just saying that like, there were plenty of opportunities to codify Roe v. Wade and abortion rights. And it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened for a reason, because I don't think there's this like clear consensus that people want to paint it as. So um, I think the jurisprudence is doing exactly what they should be, which is to interpret the law as it is until our politicians want to step up and make new laws, in which case we'll evaluate those. Yeah, I, I, I think, and I, Michaela, this is where I'm hopeful that this, like the silver lining where I think politicians in the past who've sort of built themselves as um, more or less like agnostic or have been able to sort of skirt the issue by saying like, I don't really have to have like a, 
a forceful opinion on this because we have Roe, you know, now the shoe is on the other foot and hopefully this is more of a litmus test, you know, particularly for those people who, who feel like they are socially liberal, fiscally conservative, you know, moderate Republicans to start making tough decisions because in the past they could sort of get around it by saying, well, the law is already there. So I don't have to worry about this candidate's sort of, you know, feeling about these certain things. I can just talk about taxes. And now those protections are gone. And the hope is that maybe now there's like some energy for real legislative reform. Maybe. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think, um, to Brendan's earlier point uh, that it could have been codified in the last 50 years. I think, um, first of all, filibuster or not, like putting that issue aside, um, if, if, if Democrats in Congress had said, we're going to codify Roe, um, even though we have confidence, we believe in Roe, um, that would have been, strategically speaking, I think a very, sending very mixed messages. Um, so yeah, anyway, I'll just say that. <laughs> All right. Well, we've kept you here far longer than the, <laughs> I think the 25 minutes we, we asked you for, but, um, thank you so much for coming on. I think, uh, I think we both really enjoyed this discussion and, um, you know, come back anytime. Yeah. Thank you, Mikhail. I, I, I appreciate the, it's nice to have, uh, like a legal sparring partner <laughs> Ricky, Ricky and I have yeah. already talked this out from a policy perspective but in, but it's uh, yeah. we appreciate your perspective is super valuable I mean I'll just I just want to add one thing and, and that's the reality on the ground because like we can talk here we can like talk back and forth about the constitution and you know jurisprudence and policy blah 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 um the reality on the ground is, is that people will die. Women will die. Um, there's a lot of confusion at the moment about what exceptions there might be in some of these state laws for, um, you know, when, when a woman's life is in danger. And there are so, so many scenarios where that's going to be the case. Um, I just had a child a few months ago and experienced pregnancy Pregnancy is, as one OBGYN that I follow um, has said, it's not a health neutral event. Um, and it, it puts a lot on a person's body. Um, it's, it, it's dangerous. Uh, it's inherently dangerous. And um, I think a lot of providers, as you've seen, every medical association come out against this decision. Um, it's going to be a real test on patient provider relationships, on standards of care, on whether or not um, physicians can uphold their ethical obligation to do no harm. I think it's, it's just, it's, it's a practical mess um, and it's a nightmare. So yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. Totally <laughs> fair. So once again, thank you so much to Michaela for jumping on with us tonight. Really thought-provoking, thoughtful. 
interesting. As usual, we we hit pause and then immediately had a great conversation, a follow-up conversation about all the different like constitutional ways in which uh, abortion might come back in front of the court and potentially be legal and all of the policy arguments. But I think she laid out very, very nicely a lot of the main arguments against the the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe. With that said, we actually are extremely fortunate to be joined by another guest in this episode, uh, one of my good friends from law school, uh, Jessica Vandervoort, who will we'll pop on in a moment. And Jessica is someone that I've gotten to know who is going to take a different perspective than Michaela just did. And so as as much as we, uh, we were thrilled to have um, one female perspective on it, we're even more thrilled to have a, a female perspective from a, a different end of the spectrum on, on the show tonight. So we hope you enjoyed Michaela's interview and we hope you do enjoy Jessica's interview. All right, uh, we are now thrilled to welcome my good friend from Suffolk Law School, Jessica Vandervoort, to the program. I've gotten to know Jessica very well over the past year through a number of different events and, and discussions that we've had. And so in the interest of not only getting another female perspective onto the program to talk about this issue and, and um, talk about abortion and abortion rights in general, um, trying to get female perspectives from different sides. So we felt incredibly fortunate to be joined by Michaela Louie earlier. Um, and now we're welcoming Jessica, who's going to, we think, provide a, a bit of a different perspective on the issue. So Jessica, thank you so much for taking some time and, and joining us tonight. Well, thank you both for having me. I, I was honored and humbled to be asked to speak. Yeah, no, we, we appreciate it. We know it's it's not easy sharing your thoughts in a public forum on any topic mm-hmm. and certainly on a topic like this in which there's been, it's engendered so much fierce debate and reaction on both sides. We appreciate you um, deciding to step up and just like have the conversation with us. So again, very much thank you for, for joining us tonight. Certainly. I was saying just before we started recording how if it hadn't been Brendan asking, I probably wouldn't have jumped on because it has been just so volatile. And as a woman, I, I see that and I go, what are we doing? You know, these are this is not the way to have these conversations and to truly care. And if, you know, both sides, we claim to care about the woman, about the children, you know, have these conversations, you know, have this have this time to share. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's kind of the ethos of the show. We couldn't agree more that mm-hmm. maybe some people out there, their minds are changed a little bit from either hearing Michaela or hearing you tonight, which would be great, but even just to, to see the other side, we think is so important. So in, in the spirit of that, why don't you just start by explaining like your journey with your views on abortion and, and reproductive rights over the course of your lifetime? Like how did you end up as you know, a, a young early twenties woman being what we would call much more on the on the pro life side. If you could trace that journey, that'd be great. Certainly. So I will caveat it by saying um, a lot of people may not like what I say tonight. That just is. I'm. I know that's probably the case. Um, but those who know me, I think, know that my life verse, I'm a Christian, and my life verse is seek justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. And so I approach, I at least attempt to approach every legal issue from that stance of seeking justice for all those involved, um, loving kindness, acting kindly in what I do, and doing so humbly, knowing I don't have all the answers on any topic, um, especially something like this. But I am a Christian first, as I said, and so 
part of that, my worldview is that life begins at conception. Um, from the moment that an egg is fertilized, it is its own DNA and therefore it's its own life. And we as Christians believe that life is created in the image of God. It's the Imago Dei, um, which directly means the image of God. Um, and that therefore that life is inherently valuable and that to end a life like that is, is killing an innocent child. Now, I recognize that that is not always an easy perspective, nor does that always um, directly correlate to easy answers. For me, part of my own view is that when my mom was expecting me, they thought that I had Down syndrome. Um, Doctors urged her to have additional tests. And if they had come back positive, she likely would have been urged to have an abortion. Uh, My parents had very strong views about that, thankfully. Um, And I'm here and I have a little sister with special needs who's also here. Her life is so valuable. Her life has changed hundreds. I've seen her impact um, so many people just with her love and her grace. And so I approach um, life from the perspective that each life has inherent worth and value. And because of that, every life deserves a lifetime and deserves a voice. And so that's a lot of what shapes why I'm pro-life that doesn't necessarily shape all of my views on Dobbs. So there is a difference in that, in that while I personally am always pro-life and while I will always fight for um, the lives of the unborn, I also recognize that it's larger than that, that we have put women into a box that I don't think is fair and that we've put a lot of weight onto women that I just see as um, quite frankly, really upsetting as a woman in this society. I can dig deeper into that too um, but that's just my background yeah no I, I would love you to do that that's so interesting because I think one of the places that I would want to go after hearing your story is that Ricky and I throughout like recording over the last week with this episode there's been a lot of debate around the issue the role that religion played in, in this decision and we have a court that is overwhelmingly Christian and while that is not present necessarily explicitly in the opinion Mm -hmm. Ricky's point was that you probably wouldn't have to dig too hard to see some implicit like Christian beliefs undergirding Mm -hmm. a lot of like the philosophical thoughts overturning Roe so particularly as like a as a law student as someone that is going to be a lawyer how Mm -hmm. are you able to reconcile those two things of being, like you said, a Christian first and having those deeply held beliefs, but obviously understanding that not everyone in this yeah. country is Christian and that as, mm-hmm. as law students and scholars and judges, we're supposed to separate our religious beliefs from the actual law. So do you see, well, I guess my question is like, one, just how in general do you deal with that, any inherent tension? And then two, even if you're happy with the policy outcome here, mm-hmm. are you also okay with the legal outcome? Mm, that's a really good question. So I surprised myself by really agreeing with a line that I did not expect to agree with um, in Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, where he said that the Constitution is neither pro-life nor pro-abortion, or I think he said pro-life nor pro-choice. Um, and I, I'm paraphrasing it, so, and pardon the train in my backyard. Um, but I, I really agree with that in the sense that the Constitution one moment, the Constitution was never meant to be our moral compass, right? Um, we are not um, 
set up as a new church in this nation, right? It was the separation of church and state. Um, so I do agree with that sense of I, I, I don't think that the Constitution is the way to legislate um, religion. However, there are some just aspects of natural law at play, I believe, um, that are not inherently religious in nature, but inherently um, philosophical and moral and what we just see as just and right. And also, if we look at it from the perspective of, um, you know, just that sense of life, liberty and, and pursuit of happiness that we see from the start, this is life, right? But I also have said a lot this week, something which I think has surprised some of my friends, and that's, I don't really care whether or not abortion is ever legal. I wish it would become unthinkable. And the reason for that is there are a lot of things that are legal that I do not morally agree with. And there are a lot of things that I may uphold as a lawyer and I may say are legal that may go against my own personal beliefs. Um, There just, there are, there's little nuances of things that are not necessarily in line with what I see as the law of God, um, but our law of man. And I'm tasked with upholding them. However, I want to see a world where eventually we don't give women just one option, um, where we don't just tell women, you're in this situation, here's the way out of it, and it's abortion. Um, I would love to see this maybe going off topic for a moment, if it is, pardon me. But one of the things that's really frustrated me this week is seeing all these companies that are willing to put out money to send women out of state um, to have abortion procedures and wait for a second, because that's not what frustrates me. Um, but what frustrates me most is the concept that these same companies are very often not willing to give good maternity or paternity care to their employees. They're not willing to give great maternity leave, paternity leave. They really don't care about supporting the woman on the other side of it if they choose life. And I see that. And I think we just have created this world that actually far from empowering women, really shuts women down Um, because we say, here's the option. Oh, the most empowering option is abortion. When in reality, it would be far more empowering to give women either protection so that pre-pregnancy, that's less likely to happen. And there's a variety of ways that I could talk about that we don't always use Um, or making it so that when women do find themselves pregnant, there isn't that shame that we've put into them on society um, that society's put onto them of, um, you know, a, a pregnancy as a single mother pregnancy when they are in the middle of a career. Um, you know, we, we've put women into this position where they have to choose and we don't make men do that. Right. We don't, we don't make men choose between a career and parenting normally with few exceptions. Um, we don't make some of these choices for other people. Um, it's always the moms. And as a woman who wants to pursue a career, you know, I'm in law school, I'm planning on pursuing that career, but also has always dreamed of being a mom. I just find it very disappointing to live in a country where I'm told the best way for you to advance your career is we'll give you these options that if you have an unwanted pregnancy, you can end it versus, will give you these options to come alongside you and help if you're in those shoes. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that fully answered the question you originally posed for me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, th- that's, that's a really interesting perspective. And I think one that I've sort of been coming to or 
reading more about um, recently, I guess one of the questions I have is that is not always in line with kind of the rest of the Republican Party and how <clears throat> they approach these issues. So I wonder. No, it's not. Yeah, I, I, I guess I wonder, does that make this issue does that make you feel like you have kind of like an uneasy alliance with the rest of the Republican party in this way? And, and yeah, how do you view a party that is on the one hand, you know, very against abortion access, but also on the other hand, not providing paid family leave, not providing, uh, yeah, particularly maternity leave or really at, at, at times at odds with a lot of other initiatives that try and promote equality of women in the workplace or in other areas. Exactly. So one, I'm fiscally all over the place. Um, and two, sorry, Brendan, if I'm disappointing you for a moment, but I'm actually not Republican. Um, I am unenrolled in Massachusetts because independent is its own party. Um, so I am unenrolled. Um, I made the decision back in, I think, 2017 or 2018, my like second or third year of voting, um, that I couldn't as, as a Christian, I couldn't align myself with either party because I just saw so many initiatives on both sides that were not in line with my views on faith of caring of that seeking justice and loving kindness. Um, and a lot of them have to do with fiscal reasons. Um, because I am pro-life, that is the issue I vote for first. Um, it's, I'm not a single issue voter, but I am a priority issue voter, if that makes any sense. Um, so I will primarily vote Republican in, in the state. However, in the state, my voice is very, <laughs> very much a minority anyway, so it doesn't affect much. Um, but I will say I, I am not Republican and that's because of issues like this, where I think we have to, especially those of us who are young adults, we have to work on either fixing the parties or throwing away the two party system. Haven't quite figured out how that would work. You're preaching um, the choir here, Jessica. Yeah. Exactly. I was like, either I'm about to start a war or, or we're agreeing. Um, but I think because you know, there are these issues that we're realizing, especially our generation, I think is realizing like we can't uphold justice and turn a blind eye to something that this party is holding that the other party is right on and vice versa. And so I do think as we're having these conversations, conversations I've had this week with some of my dear friends, with people in my church are things like, you know, we need to be coming up with good options that, you know, conservatives need to be okay with. We're going to be throwing more money into things like better welfare opportunities for families that, you know, that need it. Um, that are now having these pregnancies they didn't plan, if we truly care about these children, we need to show it, right? And and on the, the opposite side of things, you know, if if women are truly what is cared about um, from this, from the pro-choice team, then they need to be showing it too, right? Of, of taking care of the women now um, in rough situations and not just in here, we'll send you across the border, you can get the procedure done, but how can you really care for them in their communities? Yeah, Ricky and I talked about that before because Ricky posed this, a similar question to me and it's a, it's a totally fair question. And my response, I think this is what you're getting at is it, I don't believe that it's a binary choice. You can mm-hmm. be 
pro-life in the sense that we want to protect as many of the unborn children as possible, but also be pro-life in the sense that when that child is six months or one or two or five, then we need to be doing a whole lot more as a society Mm -hmm. to do that. And so I think that's really interesting. And maybe I'll take that point to bounce to like my next point is where do you see so this is something that's been 50 years in the making for the, the pro-life, the more conservative movement. Yeah. And so I think now there's a little bit of a danger if you are on that side of complacency of like, we did it. Right? Like, we, we, like we accomplished this, this, you know, this plan, this goal that we set in motion all of these decades ago, finally it's done. So what next? Are you thinking that, and, and again, this is, I don't want to present these as binary options, but what are some of the things that you kind of see as, as next in the, the, the fight the, to protect yeah. as much life as possible, to care and be Absolutely. kind and be just in our society. Mm-hmm. So for one, and I know you agree with me on this, but just to point it out, it's certainly not done, right? Because it's only all we've done with Dobbs is we've returned it to the States, right? And so I think that's something that a lot of voices I'm hearing this week seem to have forgotten about, um, is that in the States, they're celebrating this um, as a pro-life win. There's other states where it's getting far worse for um, for those who believe in the lives of the unborn being protected. For those who are pro-choice and are livid about it in some states, in other states, they've just gotten far more expansive you know, capabilities than they had before now that it's at the States. And so I think that's something to point out too, is that for whichever, whichever camp someone's on, and I don't think it has to be that dichotomy, right? I don't think it has to be that binary. Um, It's not over, right? It's just now in those individual States. And I think one of the conversations that I've seen happening beautifully um, with some really conservative voices, but voices that are not just right wing, um, but really just truly care about women and and children in this. Um, And some who are on the very front lines is what we need to do now is step up with the funding, um, with adoption, right? Um, One of the arguments that's been posed a lot is that there's you know, there's thousands of children in foster care. Mm-hmm. That is a very sad statistic. Yeah. And that is a statistic that needs to be fixed. And I grew up with a lot of um, children in my church who were in foster care. And so I saw that firsthand. Um, but there is a waiting list thousands long. Um, I don't have the exact statistic on it, but there's a waiting list for newborn babies. So the newborn babies who are going to be born, they are going to be placed Um, that is not, that's not the issue. The issue is still the children that are in foster care, the children that this hasn't changed for, um, this is still an ongoing issue. And that's something that I think is kind of being overlooked on both sides. It's either being used as a weapon, um, on one side of the argument or just kind of brushed aside on the other. And that is something we still continue to need to do. And then also, of course, like I said, caring for women who are in those situations, Um, One of the things that was really, really sad for me as a woman in Massachusetts um, was seeing the attacks that have been happening across the nation on pregnancy care centers um, since this ruling. And I know there's a lot of different views on that. I've had conversations with some of my friends from Suffolk about our different views just as far as like are some of these pregnancy centers deceiving women by suggesting not to have abortions and things like that. But at the bottom line, these, these care centers have been and continue to be places that want to pour money into and 
volunteer hours into new families, providing them with things like diapers and formula and, you know, sometimes even job training and things like that for the woman. Um, And I think that that's something that we want to try to support, especially in states where that is the option now, Mm -hmm. you know, um, of truly using those centers as a way to care um, or opening new ones if you don't feel like the ones that are in place are reputable enough. One one thing I wanted to ask you, because it's actually a similar question that um, Brendan asked uh, Michaela the other night was, is there, um, is there a line? Like we, obviously we always talk about it as like, you're either pro or you're against, but even in the current, like pre this recent, pre the Dobbs ruling, even in that landscape, there was, you know, a viability standard, apologies, my voice is totally escaping me right now. But like, when you think about um, your position, do you feel like there's a line? And, and, you know, one of the things that Michaela reminded me is that, A, just because this rule, even in the states where now it's, you know, almost impossible to get access to an abortion does not mean that we're ending abortions. And so what's likely going to happen is that many of those abortions are just going to become far more unsafe and we'll likely have uh, women who are going to, to, to die who may have otherwise gotten access. You know, they were, they were, had their minds made and they might've gotten access to a safer procedure. So how do you do, or do you reconcile that? Do you feel like there's tension there when you're obviously pro-life because you believe in life? um, And now we have sort of this tension between an unborn life and a, and a, and a, you know, prospective mother. Yeah. So I have like 12 things I thought of as you were saying that, and I'm trying to keep them all straight. Um, One, I think just something to note, um, and I don't have all the statistics on this. I think if you would like to um, definitely talk to Professor Alvare, who came and spoke to us um, at Suffolk. And there's a couple of other documentaries I could point you to. But one of the things I think is often just kind of a false word for it is abortion itself is not really safe. And the reason I say that is any procedure that ends a life I don't think we can call safe, but also um, no abortion leaves a woman on scarred in some way. Um, We were talking with Professor Alvare on how they haven't really done very good studies as far as how it affects women overall. And there's most likely a reason for that. Um, And there actually are statistics that women who have had abortions are much more likely to have breast cancer. Um, I could go into the the actual biological reasons why, but I don't have to at the second, um, unless you'd like me to. Um, but so there are things like that, that I just, as a woman think that we need to be told more and we're not being told. And so that that is one concern I have, um, not to nitpick your, your question at all. Just something that I think we don't always talk about is that, uh, even the safest abortions are really not entirely safe. Um, but It is hard because, like I said, from my perspective, it's always a life Um, from my personal perspective. What do you do in situations from a legal perspective um, where you've got things like rape, incest, life of the mother, things like that? And I think one of the important things to note um, is the difference between, again, the natural law and religious views on it and what we do legally. Um, 
from a natural law perspective, my question in those situations is, so for instance, in the case of rape, um, do you believe that the rapist deserves the death penalty? And if the answer is no, my follow-up is then why the child? Um, Because ending a life does not fix the situation. However, from a legal perspective um, in this situation, I I do think, and I have not read every single law, so pardon me, um, because there's quite a few of them now, but I believe in every single law that is coming down through the states, there is some sort of exception at play for situations of rape, for situations of um, life of the mother. And I could be wrong on that. There may be a couple of states that are that are being hard and fast on that. Um, but I believe that has been the case in most of the rulings. And I do think from a legal perspective, at least for now, until we have better understanding of, um, of better options and better care, that is legally understandable. Um, I also think though, that with, um, with the rules that we're seeing in place, if you look at Mississippi's law, the one that started this all right. Um, they had, I think a very decent one. Theirs was the 15 week, um, by 15 weeks women know, um, nine times out of 10, a woman knows, um, and has had enough time to make that decision. Do I think that that should be the rule always from, again, biblical perspective, Christian perspective, personal perspective? No. Um, but I think that Mississippi wasn't really overreaching with their rule at all. Um, and I think, again, it's dependent on the state. Um, the state views, maybe I'm being wishy-washy with saying it that way. Maybe that's an out. I don't mean it to be. Um, but I think each state is going to end up determining their views on it. And again, from my perspective, it's a life in every situation. But I think it does get tricky when we, we weigh in. And I, this is where I say I don't have the answers, um, where I don't actually know. And I've had dear friends who have had abortions. And while it grieves me, because I do believe that's a life, I, you know, we, I don't judge them for that. Um, and so I think it's, yeah, I think I, I'm probably not fully answering your question to what you'd like me to. So feel free to, to push me to answer it a little bit harder, but um, no, yeah. I, I think that that, I mean, I think I understand where you're coming from a little more. Maybe I can press this point. I think yeah, a lot of the that are now uh, poised to or have already sort of, you know, rolled back access to abortion. The other side of it is kind of the, the stick instead of the carrot. It's we're going to criminalize women. Yeah. We're going to lock up providers. How? Yeah, I mean. And a lot of what you've been describing, I've like now heard as termed as more like life affirming instead of sort of the pro-life version. I, I guess maybe talk me through some of how, how you think about, um, yeah, how we're going to enforce this new landscape. Yeah. Um, and this, I may be going a little bit off your question, so feel free to steer me back if I am, but one of the things that I have said for a long time that I think that we need to get better at um, is looking just at, at how we treat women overall. Um, why is it that in nine times out of 10, and I think most times, um, 
the only really medicinal birth controls are given to women, never to men. Um, there's that statistic. I, I do not know the exact statistic, but you know, every nine months, a woman can have one pregnancy. Um, men can start many. <laughs> and just the fact that all that weight is placed on women, um, that they have the side effects of it. They have the long-term effects of using birth controls, um, of, you know, IUDs and things like that, which do have harmful side effects that we don't often teach women. Um, and that's something I, I should say part of my background is I've, I've researched a lot of this because I have my own autoimmune diseases and things like that, that I've had to be more careful. Um, and I've had to recognize that things that are just prescribed to women often are not always safe. Um, and I think that's something that long-term giving, not just putting this on women, but also on men to prevent pregnancies. Um, but then also, you know, how do we, how do we handle this with kindness? And I think that is an issue that's going to come down as we see these unroll. We haven't really gotten to experience other than SB8. We haven't really seen um, any of these in action yet. I am not super familiar with any of the ones that purport to criminalize women. Um, that one I'm not as familiar with. And that one I do have some issue with because I don't think that criminalizing a woman for a choice um, is the right way to go. Um, that goes back to, again, the you're putting women into a box and saying this is your only option. And then we're going to either shame you or criminalize you for choosing one or the other. Um, Brendan, you look like you're about to jump in. <laughs> Am I going off topic a little no, too much with no, my No, I just think that like what you're do what you're trying to give voice to is something that I think that probably the vast majority of people have felt over the past week and a half. And I not to speak for women, I'm sure women have felt it far more than I or most men have. It's just like a lot of just like that you said, like you just don't have all the answers. And I I just appreciate you being cognizant of that and admitting that like I have these personal beliefs. I feel happy in a lot of ways with what has happened from this decision but to say that I'm like happy overall with the situation of women in America like I'm, I'm not or like I'm not happy at overall with like how things are, are going societally and so I, I do appreciate that I guess just from my, from my perspective at least to to wrap up how would you because I funny and I appreciate Ricky pushing the conversation has injected some you revealed that some sense of like conflictedness of how this is all going to play out in society. So if you've had now a time to reflect, and, and I know you're big on reflection anyway, but over the past week and a half of since the decision has come down, how are you feeling overall? Mm. Well, this may not be something that will be understood by most, but I'm going to say it anyways. The other night I heard um, the national anthem and I cried. Um, I cried for possibly the first time because I, my mother cries all the time when she listens to the National Anthem. She, she takes it very seriously, the freedoms that we have. But for me, I had always lived in a nation where it felt like I was at odds with wanting to pursue a career and wanting to be a mother. And it was the first time that I got to sit as a woman and listen to the National Anthem and realize that I live in a country where the law of the land is not that my first answer is that I should abort my child. Now, I know 
that that comes with a lot of pain for people. And I know that some of my dear, dear friends might watch this and might sit here and go, really? <laughs> um, because they are feeling it very hard. Um, but my question when I look at that is, what have we done to make women feel so devastated when the right to kill a child has been taken away? And I think what has happened in this society is it's just become, that's what's, that's what we do to empower women. And I'm excited because I think that in the days ahead, we may actually see a nation truly empower women for the first time in 50 years. That is my hope. That is my prayer. Um, because I think when a community comes around a woman, when she's dealing with a very difficult time and pregnancy is difficult difficult even when it's planned, <laughs> like very difficult even when it's planned. When it's unplanned, it's very, it's even worse. Um, but when a community can come alongside a woman and be that, you know, it takes a village. Um, I think that we could see something beautiful happen. I, I really do. And I know that sounds, I know that sounds sunshine and rainbows and flippant, but I mean that genuinely because I've seen women who have been single and who have, you know, either adopted or had their own children. And I've gotten to be a part of those children's lives and see the impact they've made on this world. And I just think, you know, there are, I saw something that was just beautiful that said, there's going to be a child that in 30 years will change this world who two weeks ago was never supposed to have been born. And does that answer everything? No, it doesn't. And do we need to do a lot? Yes, we do. And does that mean that I need to actually like, do something about this? Absolutely. But I think just seeing a world where maybe women are going to have more than one choice um, and not be able to be pressured into choices as easily in some places, um, because that also happens. We don't always talk about that. And we didn't touch on that tonight of there are a lot of women who are pressured into abortions by abusive partners and by, um, you know, just by circumstances. And if we can have a world where that's not the case, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, yeah, I, I have to be careful saying that because in this state, I think it's, it's not a popular view, but I, I am genuinely excited about that. Yeah. And again, we, we appreciate you sharing that because while it might not be a super popular view here in this state, we know that you're not alone in it. And I think anyone that listens, whether they agree or disagree with you can agree on your message of hope and optimism that we're, that we can kind of come together to do better by all life, all women in, in society. So I hope that's what people walk away with. And I hope, and I think that you have given some people some more things to think about, and this is not, because there are so many things to think about with an issue yeah. like this. So uh, we, sure. again, like greatly, greatly appreciate your time, your perspective tonight. Well, thank you again for having me on. Um, and I hope I spoke clearly enough for people to follow along. But again, just, you know, thank you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you, Jessica. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. We'll see you. This issue. Um, yeah. How are you feeling? feel lucky. It's, it's so cool that... This, I, this is like, not to be too like self-serving here, but like 
sometimes the podcast gets hard to record and stuff in terms of our schedule and just having to like think about all this stuff all the time. But then you get to hear from people like Michaela and Jessica and you're just like, they're just such like brilliant people that this forum allows us to have these conversations. So I feel just incredibly fortunate that both of them gave us so much of their time and their their mind and energy and, and passion on both sides. So that's first and foremost, thank you again to both of them. Uh, I think in terms of like the overlap that I thought was interesting, uh, one thing Michaela had brought up offline was that in, in other contexts, legally, personhood doesn't really begin until after the person is born. So if you're thinking about things like child support, for example, where uh, we, we don't consider that this is a, a person until after the after the the fetus is born but all of a sudden this seems to say that in some states that person that that fetus is considered a person at 15 weeks or six weeks or conception or whatever and how does that change things and i think that's a place where i could see michaela and jessica like sitting down and being like all right we totally agree about that so jessica being like all right let's start considering these people from from the jump and let's provide all of these supports for them going forward so I, i thought that and I think Jessica was getting into this at the end where there's so much bitterness and divisiveness around this issue. And understandably, honestly, but like, how do we, how do we try to move forward in this very uncertain landscape? People are going to be still fighting legislatively, judicially on both sides, but are there also like policy things that we could do that we could actually agree on to make society better? Maybe that's a, a place to to start. Yeah, I mean, I think in both instances, they both would agree that at the end of the day, we're we would like to see fewer, not more abortions. Yes. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. But then the question becomes, who gets to decide? I mean, I th- I think one of the things particularly about uh, Jessica's personal story is is something that I was sort of like pondering. I mean, this is somebody who is ostensibly here today because their parents chose not to have an abortion when that was seriously considered. They're going to be someone who's very hard to convince that abortion is or abortion access is is a benefit to society. And I think the one thing that maybe I didn't quite follow um, because, and, and this sort of maybe, you know, her specific education on the issue and, and what she knows about it, but it felt like to me that that her mind frame is that women's only option was abortion in the past, whereas today, I actually feel like women's only option now is is birth in many of these states, whereas in the past it wasn't an only a single option. I think that was that was part of where I got lost in the argument. And I think then the the element of religion really just keeps creeping up in here in terms of like when you are when you yeah, when you claim to to have a life. And the, I think those are still open questions. Um but I, I don't know. Were, yeah, were there any elements of um, some of the arguments that you heard, or some of the reasoning that you heard that you didn't uh, that you didn't follow, or that you weren't that you weren't uh, content with? 
No, I think Michaela did a, a really brilliant job, particularly at the very end of her interview, of laying out just the on-the-ground practical implications of something like this. And I, I've said this at different points throughout the episode, I think. It's hard to tell when we have hit record when we haven't, but that it's really easy for me to sit up here and do debate club for an issue that is not probably not going to personally really affect me. And I understand that like, that's just a, as, as a man, that's a, and really as a middle upper class man, that's a privilege that many other people in this country don't have. So I, I appreciate honestly, Michaela, just like grounding and being like, all right, well, you can have your constitutional arguments. Great. But you know, what's going to happen as a result of this X, Y, and Z. And I think that's powerful. I think that's exactly what Sotomayor, Kagan and, and Breyer did. And, and that's again, where the debate club side of me is like, all right, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Honestly, I don't. I've said this to you, Ricky. It gives me no joy to understand that a lot of women are going to suffer and that women are going to die because of unsafe abortions that are going to happen now because of restrictive laws. And that potentially in some states, rape victims are, are going to have to carry children. That it's going to be very impossible for me to fathom from that. So like that gives me no joy personally. But again, I come back to like, that, that's an argument that ultimately is impactful on me as a person, but not persuasive to me. I do come back to like, what's the job of, of the court and to interpret the law. And I think that's where you have at least five justices that believe the same thing. And I think that's where when Jessica was quoting the Kavanaugh line, just saying that the constitution is silent on this issue. Let, let the people decide she's, she's making a similar argument, but I don't know. I just to kind of, wrap that up is that Kagan Sotomayor and Breyer make make the case forcefully about their arguments are are policy public policy arguments and those are good arguments but it's they're talking past each other because Alito Gorsuch uh, Thomas Kavanaugh and Tony Barrett are making constitutional arguments and it's I know this is like now I'm just a middleman but saying that like both of them can be true at the same time I tend to think that like the constitutional arguments are the ones that should win out, but I understand for the people that are so upset from a policy perspective. Yeah. I've, I've definitely been thinking about this a lot um, as well in terms of like, do the end of it, And this is like, a this is going to get very philosophical. And, and as you said, we are in that uh, uh, privileged position to have these types of conversations, but like are the, is sort of the enduring, purpose of the system more important than the people who sort of suffer the immediate consequences and i don't take i don't say that lightly but there is i think there is something to that because at the end of the day you know what the court is doing today may be against what i believe and what i think ultimately is good for society if if there is sort of um, a situation that's reversed, I would want the court to sort of uphold a, a, the same thing or to have the same standards, because I think like the idea that we have to have legislation come from the legislative branch and not from the courts is kind of important or not from <clears throat> executive action is important unfortunately i think we're we're in a situation where we're just not getting that and so now it's like well okay are we just going to go down with our system yeah. because we're not able to make any improvements 
Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. And I, I will say, Ricky, I feel like you've been more and more pushing me towards this place over the last year or so where you're you're being like, let's reckon with our systems. And I'm very much been like a system process guy being like, it's the people's fault. It's not the system's fault. But I, I think to your point, how often can I just cling to the systems if they're clearly not working? And I think that's going to force me to to at least reconsider my, I'm going to die on the hill of our systems. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to force us all to think a little bit more about that. And maybe that's a a good place to leave this one. Yeah, if you haven't got uh, enough of our thoughts, you can tune in. There's going to be a part two that comes out tomorrow in which we're going to talk about the general legitimacy of the court and some of the other decisions outside of Dobbs that have come out uh, over the past month. So you can, <laughs> again... <laughs> You might want to space these out a little bit, but if, if you're still looking for a little more Supreme Court talk, check out tomorrow's episode. Yeah. And apologies if anything feels a little uh, out of chronology in terms of what we're referring to. We've been uh, we're doing our best to kind of stitch some of these things together um, really in in an effort to get some completeness. But our editing skills are are subpar. So we're we're, yeah, we're just we're out here. We're trying. I think we've said, we've said enough. We'll leave that. All right. See you, bud. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue debating all the issues of the day. No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget Where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands Folks with different minds Because even though it did not share as we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Meet an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain So we're online We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share loud American ideals. Friends made over arguments. In an early morning bus, I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster, cause the old Main Street may not sell. It's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some 
days will leave your ego through. But, well, I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lives had. Folks of different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.